And thanks for joining us on KVCR for KVC Arts, arts and entertainment, as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. On this edition of the program, it's John Jorgensen. This interview is from just a little over a decade ago when he was getting ready to perform in Redlands. John was raised in Redlands starting around the age of one and would play with both the University of Redlands Orchestra and bands in the area, even working at Disneyland with three different bands comprised of the same four guys. He was in the Desert Rose Band along with Chris Hillman of the Birds and Herb Peterson, who's played with more people than I can name in one breath. He was also in the award-winning Helicasters and was invited by Elton John to be part of an 18-month tour, which turned into a six-year stay. John Jorgensen is also one of the forerunners in the world of gypsy jazz. And if you don't know the term or this style, we'll have it playing in the background. But let's start with having John describe what it is. It's an acoustic music. Acoustic guitar and violin are the lead instruments. A lot of the rhythm is swing, basic swing rhythm. There's also Latin rhythms as well and flamenco. A lot of world music. The gypsy element comes because Django Reinhardt, who started this music, was a gypsy. So there is a flamboyant and an emotional and a technical nature that comes along with gypsy music. And so you put that with the improvisation and the swing of jazz and you get gypsy jazz. Before we go further, does the name Andy the Jazzman Smith ring a bell for you in Nashville? Yes, it does. He's been out to see a lot of Dixieland shows that I played in traditional jazz shows. And in fact, he brought me a photocopy of a signed photograph that he had of Django Reinhardt, which I was very jealous of. Oh, he's got numbers, chair rail to ceiling, all the way down the hallway, him next to Ella, him next to Basie, him next to whomever. Well, he deserves his title of the jazz man then. He does. This is the weird connection that I was just talking about or alluded to over the phone. I produced his radio show at WKMS in Murray, Kentucky for seven years, maybe, I don't know. And for a big chunk of that time, he was saying, come on down to Nashville, see David Hungate and John Jorgensen. Yep. And I never and made it. You never and did, did That you? whole time. <laughs> and then finally, my wife gets a job as a professor at the University of Redlands. We move here, and you're at the Bowl two nights later. And I would produce Andy's show, the Jazz Man show. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, I, would, you know, I would engineer it. You know, I right. would tell him, that's too risque. Right. I would stop him a couple of times. Right. <laughs> um, and then he was the one who brought up After You're Gone. Oh, okay. Your initial, well, let's, yeah. uh, let's not call no, it. That. No, that was no, my yeah. first solo record. Okay. And I did it at the time only because I thought I'd never play that style of music again. Oh, wow. And it was like, I was thinking about it as a recording of that time in my life when I was able to play that music because I did that right when Desert Rose Band was getting signed and starting to get busy. And my career was going in that direction and I figured, okay, it's never gonna go loop around back to that. And it did, but that was my original motivation. It was like, okay, I've been playing this music for a few years now, let's just put it on record just to have it. Back in the day when I first heard this music was 1979 and I never thought that I would be able to do this as my full-time job, career, you know, in music. I made a living playing all different other styles of music, rock, country, pop music, even classical, some jazz, Dixieland, bluegrass. And while I was doing all of those other things, gypsy jazz was the music that I would play for my own enjoyment. If I was sitting around at home, that's what I'd play. It's really no surprise that you'd get involved in music somehow. Your mom and your dad. Your mom's a piano teacher? Yeah, in Redlands, California. 
My father was a professor here at the University of Redlands, and that's what brought us here. Did I read that he was a Benny Goodman band leader? He conducted for Benny Goodman at one point. Actually, Benny Goodman was a guest artist here at the University of Redlands, and my father was conducting, and I was playing in the orchestra. So as a teenager, I got to play with Benny Goodman. Wow. You had already had the clarinet, though, by then. I did. I was a clarinet player. At that time, I didn't really play jazz in the clarinet. I was more of a classical player. So it wasn't until later, really, that I got interested in playing some jazz on the clarinet, probably 10 years after that. After the Beatles, that's when you really started picking up a guitar? I mean, you were... That's what got me interested, definitely, okay. you know, watching them on Ed Sullivan show and then just listening to pop music on the radio. Certainly the Monkees were on television then and bands like Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs and, okay. of course, you know, Rolling Stones and the Beatles and the Buffalo Springfield and the Birds and the Beach Boys and the Association. So this is the kind of stuff that you were learning when you were just playing with the guitar, trying to get it going? Yeah, that's what got me interested in playing the guitar. I loved the sound, like the guitar at the beginning of Day Tripper, and the guitar at the beginning of Satisfaction. Anything that started with a guitar riff, I pretty much liked it. I know that you had several different jobs at Disneyland. Growing up, that'd be one of the things to do around here. Sure. Now, beyond playing in a rock band, I'd love to hear you telling the story about the three different bands, four same guys. Right, okay. <laughs> I think the first couple of shows I played in Disneyland were rock band shows, but they wanted a band that could play in two different areas of the park. And of course, they have different styles of music in each area. So this band was supposed to play Dixieland music or Roaring Twenties music on Main Street and bluegrass music out near the Thunder Mountain Railroad, which is a new ride. And whenever there's a new ride, of course, they have long lines. So they wanted extra entertainment. So at the time, I wanted to learn how to play the mandolin, but I didn't own one or play it yet. But I lied and said that I played that so that I could get the job. And I did play clarinet, as you mentioned before, but I was a classical player and didn't play Dixieland at all and didn't even know anything about it. But I, again, lied. So. I ended up, you know, having this band with a banjo player and a guitar player and a bass player. The guitar player was actually a comedian. He played enough guitar to get by, about three or four bluegrass songs, and then he played the washboard and was very funny with that. The bass player could play a tuba and a string bass, and the banjo player could play a bluegrass banjo, which is a five string, and a Dixieland banjo, which is a four string. So we learned only enough songs to play like 15 minutes in an area, and then we'd walk to a different area and play those same songs again. And eventually we got bored and started learning more songs. And it was during that time that I heard Django's music for the first time, and I got really interested in gypsy jazz. So I figured maybe I could figure out a way to create a third entity so that I could play that music. So that's what eventually happened. The bluegrass band I would play mandolin in, and we would dress like cowboys and play in Bear Country or Thunder Mountain. And then the Dixieland, we would dress like Roaring Twenties outfits and I would play the clarinet or saxophone. And then we would change clothes again into like a 30s semi-zoot suit kind of look and play gypsy jazz and 30s swing. So that would keep it more interesting, you know, to do a job that long and play that many hours a day. At least we had three different styles of music, three different instruments, three different sets of songs three different sets of costumes. Four same guys. So it was the four same guys. And then at that period at night, I would then put a, a different set of stuff in my car, perhaps rockabilly, you know, and, and have those clothes and those instruments. And I would go up and play some clubs in LA. Playing bass for that, right? Yeah, playing bass with a band called the Shaking Snakes <laughs> and, and various other bands. The job at Disneyland was great. 
We had benefits and it was a smoke-free environment. During the winter, it was during the daytime. So you'd have evenings for you to go pursue other things. But I never wanted it to be the place where I ended up. You know, I didn't want to be there another 20 years from then. And so that's why I would go up to Hollywood and pursue all these other bands. And eventually, through three or four other bands, I ended up putting together this band with Chris Hillman right, called the right. Desert Rose Band. And pretty quickly got a record deal and pretty quickly had some chart success on the radio and ended up in the next five, six years having five number one singles and touring around the country. I left that band in 1990, and then we decided to reform. Oh gosh. It's not a thing that we'll ever do full time again, but it's a lot of fun to get together and play with those friends again. You met Chris, I guess through another guy, but he first saw you when you were sitting there jamming with David Grisman. That's right. This was at the NAMM show in Anaheim, and David Grisman was demonstrating a mandolin that was built for him by a company called Saga. And the interesting thing is Saga now makes a signature guitar for me, and that's what I play most often with my quintet. But I was jamming with David, and we were playing actually some Django Reinhardt-type songs, and Chris Hillman and Al Perkins walked up, and he, of course, knew David Grisman. My name had been mentioned to him by a mutual friend, but we'd never met, and he'd never seen me play. So pretty much after that, he asked me to come and play with him in an acoustic quartet, mandolin and guitar. And we did a couple of tours. We went to France. We did touring around the East Coast. Then we got a chance to open for Dan Fogelberg and back him up on a tour. And one of the members wasn't able to do it, so Herb Peterson came in, took his place. So pretty soon, now we had two-thirds of the Desert Rose Band was there. And then I kind of talked Chris into going electric, changing the format of the band a little bit. And we got Steve Duncan and J.D. Manus, and that became Desert Rose Band. You seem to be right at about the right age to have been, oh my God, that's one of the birds. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I used to trade 45s so that I could have birds 45s. Yeah, I was, I don't want to say starstruck, but I was definitely aware of his history and knew about the Flying Burrito Brothers. I didn't know that he discovered Amy Lou Harris and, and hooked her up with Graham Parsons, and that started her career. I didn't know that he brought Clarence White into the studio with the birds for the first time. I didn't know that he wrote It Doesn't Matter with Stephen Stills in Manassas. But I did have the Southern Hill <laughs> Fury album and I knew about the birds. And It was great to meet him and work together and, and we were very, very close. We remained close over all these years and I actually owe him a lot for taking me from being a local musician to a national and international musician. there you went on to the Helicasters. Yeah. Now I've gone YouTubing. Okay. And <laughs> one of the most, I don't know if you even touch that anymore, the Orange Blossom special with that multiple delay going on. Yeah. Do you do that anymore? Uh, yes, I still do it. I'm not with my quintet because it's, as you said, it's a whole different type of equipment and setup and style. But uh, I still do that. <laughs> In fact, this last weekend I played out at a festival called Guitar Town and one day is acoustic and one day is electric. So my quintet played on the acoustic day along with great flat picker Brian Sutton and amazing singer-songwriter from England, Richard Thompson, and we all jammed together. And then the electric day, Cajun guitarist Sonny Landreth, a great slide player, a Texan Monty Montgomery, and then I had my electric band, which is a quartet, and my guests on the show were Albert Lee and Ray Flack. And Albert Lee got his first notoriety playing with Emmylou Harris. 
and Ray Flack got his first notoriety playing with Ricky Skaggs. In fact, I mentioned Albert Lee because he's probably the first guy I saw live doing that effect that I use in Orange Blossom Special, which was done with an Echoplex in those days. The delay pedals weren't even built yet. We didn't have digital stuff yet. But there was a song called Price I Pay that Desert Rose Band recorded with Emmylou Harris. And in that song, I wanted to do that type of a solo. So at the beginning of the song, I needed to start it out so that the tempo would, uh, would set the tempo with this delay. And the drummer would keep that tempo. And hopefully by the time we got back around to it, we were at the same speed. And that this worked because you have to set it at a really precise tempo. Otherwise, you're sunk. That grew and grew and grew and became a really long piece. And then I ended up using that when the Helicasters recorded Orange Blossom Special. It's basically the same thing, a long vamp in E and you can do anything you want. And you did. to KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR. I'm David Fleming in conversation with John Jorgensen. John's one of the forerunners in the world of gypsy jazz. And a little bit later in the program, how he happened to play Django Reinhardt, the originator of gypsy jazz in the film Head in the Clouds. First though, John, was it then a 1988 gig with the Desert Rose Band, which indirectly led to you working with Elton John. Yeah, yeah, it did. That was the first time, maybe the only time we ever played at the Roxy. I think the only time I ever played there. And I used to go there to see, you know, Tower of Power and Stanley Clark and Emmy Lou Harris and whoever. I used to drive from Redlands to Hollywood to see these concerts. So for me to play there, it was a big deal. And I was proud to play there. And in the audience that night were, along with my parents and Rose Maddox, Bruce Hornsby, Dave Edmonds, Nicolette Larson, Bernie Taupin, Stephen Stills, and Elton John. And after the show, Elton came up to me in the dressing room and just grabbed my hand and said, brilliant guitar, you know, it was amazing. I went to see a couple of his shows after that, and I'd never seen him live, and I was blown away by him as a live performer. And I got to be friends with his guitarist, Davey Johnston. We would meet up every once in a while if we ended up in the road in the same area. Davey and I would have lunch or something like that. And then I kind of lost touch with them because this was in the days before email. And, and then six years later, I just got a phone call out of the blue from Elton asking me to do an 18-month world tour with him. It actually took me about a week to decide to do it because I was really happy with my life at that point and I knew that I'd have to pretty much give up everything I was doing to just tour with Elton. And not that I wasn't excited about that, but in this business, if you give up something, you don't go pick it up again. Didn't you also have a broken shoulder at this point? Uh, well, yeah. Not, not, I heard about that. Yeah, not, not when I made the decision, but like three weeks before my first show with him, yeah, I broke my shoulder. So, But fortunately, I did decide to go tour with him, and 18 months turned into six years, and it was an amazing experience. And he's a wonderful guy, a great performer, and through working with him, I had the chance to play with many, many other artists like Sting and Billy Joel and George Michael and Brian Adams and Mary J. Blige and on and on and on. So. 
It was a good choice. During this concert setting, you're not just a guitarist. We've already talked about the clarinet, the bass. We'll see what other things slip out during this interview. But for this, you were playing not only soprano sax, who yeah. knows what else? Yeah, actually, what he originally wanted, he told me, he says, uh, we'd like to add someone to the band that could do a lot of harmony vocals and play a lot of the guitar parts. So that's basically what I did. And Davy Johnston is a great guitarist, and he's been Elton's guitarist since 1976. So I wouldn't want to tread on his territory. I felt like my job was to add the color guitars, you know, 12 strings and acoustics and mandolins and six string bass. And Davey and I doubled a lot of parts too. But then if there was need for pedal steel, I would play that. The soprano sax, alto sax, tenor sax, percussion, vocals. Like in Honky Cat, there's a horn section, so I played the sax. Daniel, there's some mandolin. Tiny Dancer, there's a pedal steel. Yeah, we would try to make the songs sound as much like the records as possible because I know that's what people would okay, hear. Gotcha, and then gotcha. Elton would be free to He'd change his parts and, and to jam around and gotcha. stuff like that. Davey Johnson and you, I guess it was, well, you were on tour, you would end up writing. This led to a, a yeah, about it's acoustic thing. pretty eclectic, actually. Well, well, Davey and I are really similar in that we both have a strong acoustic background, but we also love electric rock, too. And we had so much fun playing together, we decided with to... Yeah, with Yeah, in Elton John's band. And we decided to use some of our downtime to create a, a duet album. Anything we could think of to do with two acoustic guitars. We recorded these duets on a small digital four track in our hotel rooms. We did alternate tunings and double necks and six and 12 string acoustics. And we would each write a song and then create it as a duet together. So all of the credits of all the songs are shared between us, but usually the idea would come from one or the other, and then we would flesh it out together, and we had a really good time. It's called Crop Circles. It's a very nice album, and it's always been in the back of our minds to do a, a second volume at some point, but we'll see. Tell me the story of the guitar. You were playing the GL guitars for a long time, and you were about to go on tour with Elton, and you still haven't gotten a guitar. I'd been playing G&L guitars for quite a while. I was living down in Anaheim at that time, and G&L were located in Fullerton, which is where Fender started his company, and Leo Fender was the head of G&L. The L was for Leo Fender. And so very often I would get a phone call saying, uh, Mr. Fender has something he'd like you to try. And so I could just you know, drive over the next town 10 minutes and be there trying a new guitar. After he passed away, I still stayed with the company and I did, you know, little R&D with them and I would perform with their guitars on stage to the point where they made a signature guitar with my name on it. Everything looked like my guitar. And I was getting ready to go on this world tour and I, they hadn't sent me one. And in fact, they didn't even tell me that they were putting this guitar out. I just found out about it through someone else at the NAMM show. They said, hey, saw your guitar, it's really cool. I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, didn't you have a signature GNL? I said, well, we talked about it, but never decided on it. I said, well, they put it out. I'm like, okay. I had to call the company and said, hey, you know, I'm going on this big world tour with Elton John. Don't you think it'd be a good idea for me to play one of these new signature guitars? And they said, oh, yeah, that'd be great. We'd love for you to do that. I said, well, maybe you should send me one then. <laughs> it's like, oh, we haven't sent it? No. Did you don't have one? I said, did you send me one? No. Eventually they did. They also never paid you, right? I mean, other than in guitars. Well, yeah. So I, I kept, you know, after that, I kept after him for uh, some accounting. 
and I never got it and I never got it accounting and a contract and I you know months went by and I never got it and at that time the Helicasters were in existence too and Jerry Donahue was really pulling for all of us to go over Defender from Fairport Convention yes okay yep that Jerry and uh, Jerry's a very persuasive guy and plus you know after they they wouldn't give me accounting for so many months I decided to okay let's go over to Fender and see what they can do for us I basically said look you guys have a couple of months to sell the existing stock since you will never tell me how many have been sold I'm just gonna make up a figure and this is what you owe me and they didn't like that <laughs> scenario so they said well can we just give you some guitars all right we'll do it like that nice. so I still have one or two you know new in the box in the case nice, nice. <laughs> signature GNLs a couple of years in a row there were a couple of Japanese Fender signature John Jorgensen models and now this thing with Saga okay what happened next is what went with Fender and at the time I needed two particular different type of guitars one a Telecaster style and one with a whammy a tremolo system and the GNL that I was using did a specific thing so they said, the quickest thing we can do for you as a group is each year we have a limited edition set of signature instruments. And the only other band that we've done before was the Ventures. So we would like to do a signature series of Helicasters, limited edition guitars, which would be built in Japan. And just choose whatever you want. So I took all the features from this particular GNL prototype that Leo Fender had personally given me and I put those all into more of a Fender Stratocaster look, which was a maple body, very heavy maple body. Split coil pickups, half coils that humbuck each other. Okay. A two-point pivot vibrato, and then just, of course, very flashy looks, you know, black sparkle with gold sparkle. <laughs> and that became a signature John Jorgensen Helicaster model. Gotcha. And they would only do that for a year, and they changed the models. These were so popular that they extended it for another six months. So those were built from 1997 through the first half of 98. At that point, they built me a custom shop Telecaster with my signature model. That guitar was Carino body and had special pickups made of double tele coils in the front and in the back position. So it was a kind of a unique, one-of-a-kind guitar. And then three or four years later, I was at the Music Messe, which is like the NAM show of Europe. It's the worldwide one in Germany. And I saw this Saga Gypsy style guitar. And anyone that I'd seen trying to make a copy of those guitars, which were originally built by Selmer in the 1930s, usually they never got it right. Well, these guys got it right. And I liked the guitar a lot. And I said, look, if you send me that particular guitar, I'll write a review for it, a glowing review. But I want that one. I don't want one like it. I want that one. So they did send me that particular guitar. And um, I played it for a while, and I, I noticed some differences between that guitar and my original Selmers from the 30s. And I said, hey, if you varnished the inside, if you made the bracing lighter, this and that and whatever, it would be a nicer instrument. So yeah. you're not only endorsing it, but it really is made for what you're doing. Yeah, you like can put your own touch. It, yeah, you can put your own peculiarities into it, and, and guitars have so many different things you can change about them. So they said, look, yeah, we'll change all those things, and we'll make a signature model Saga. So that's nice. We've eventually done three variations on it. When you did uh, Head in the Clouds. We're going to be hearing Django Reinhardt type music, but uh, you actually got to play him. Yeah. How did you even get, who made the call? Well, the director uh, is a great director, and he wrote the film as well, named John Dwygan. He's half Australian, half British. 
So he wanted to use the original recordings of Django Reinhardt and the Quintet of the Hot Club of France from the 30s in the film. But the music supervisor said, look, you know, the dialogue is going to be newly recorded. The other soundtrack music is going to be newly recorded. It's just going to sound wrong. So he said, okay, well, find me somebody that can replicate that music. And so the music supervisor turned in a few people, and the guy said, no, it's not right. So this supervisor went to Guitar Player Magazine and asked them, do you know anybody that can replicate Django Reinhardt? And they, Guitar Player Magazine recommended me. So he hooked me up with the director, and we started talking. I sent him some of my music, and then he said, oh, yes, Django makes a particular racket on the guitar, and, and you're the only one that I've heard that makes that same particular racket. <laughs> I said, thank you, I guess. And he said, so fine, yeah, we'll do it. He said, there's also a part of Django on camera. And I said, oh, I'd love to do that. He said, I don't look anything like Django, but I'll cut my hair off, I'll dye it black, I'll grow the little mustache, I'll do whatever. And he said, okay, well, we'll have to get the prosthetics department to make you something special for your hand, because Django only had the use of these first two fingers. And I said, oh, that would be really cool. You know, that'd be awesome. And he says, well, I was only kidding. How, how could you play? I said, well, I learned those solos with two fingers already. I was trying to let this guy know that I knew a lot about Django without being like a crazy psycho Django fan. You know, so I kind of blew it when I told him I'd already learned these solos with two fingers. But it was so much fun because, I mean, imagine getting to play your favorite musician and historical figure for a day. And they made up a, a club in, in Montreal, looked like an old Parisian club. And even to the point of making little place cards in French that say, tonight only, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, and their Quintet of the Hot Club of France. So that was amazing. And of course, the scene that I'm playing this music, Charlize Theron and Penelope Cruz are dancing together. So this is a good day filming for you. Yeah, very nice. And I sat between them in the makeup chairs in the morning as well. So I've seen both of those women without makeup. Okay, no questions. <laughs> Later, after shooting one night in Montreal, you ended up going to a concert and you still had the hand makeup on? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe my luck because Borelli Legren is a great, probably the greatest guitarist in this style in the world. And he's from the same tribe as Django, a Manouche gypsy. Okay. Yep, from the Strasbourg area. And he was performing in Montreal that night. And I'd met Borelli a few times over the years. We're, you know, friendly acquaintances. So I thought we were going to be done with this scene, you know, by time to go see his show. Time went on and on and on. I was like, wow, I really want to see Borelli, you know. Finally, we finished, you know, the shooting, and we didn't really have time to, like, wash the makeup off or anything like that. We just ran to the hotel, threw our guitars in there, and then went to the concert. And I sent a note backstage to him saying, hey, I'm here. I'm going to come and see you after your show, but don't freak out because I look a little bit different. So I gave him a warning. It's like I went to the dressing room, and, you know, his eyes just got giant. He's like, what? And then he looked at my hand, which they had put makeup on this section of my hand to draw it up and make it look burned and scarred. And, and the strange thing is, like, when you do that, your, your fingers kind of automatically go into that position. And they put spirit gum in here so that they would stay like that, like Django's. And so when I showed him my hand, he really freaked out. And he was, you know, how sort of like when a dog wants to, like, grab a snake, but they're afraid or something at the same time. So he was like, he wanted to touch it, but he was like freaked out at the same time. Wonderful. So it was really cool. 
It's been Music in Conversation with John Jorgensen for the entirety of this edition of KVC Arts. He's rather actively touring in a number of different configurations, bluegrass, gypsy jazz, and more, which you can stay on top of at johnjorgensen.com. Thanks again to John Jorgensen and here at KVCR. Thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Dulock, and Sharina Watt. Thanks also to Frank Blanquette with FNX. He recorded and filmed this interview. Many past shows can be found through iTunes, Spotify, NPR One, Google Play, and most past shows are at kvcrnews.org slash arts. I'm David Fleming. Thanks especially to you for listening and for your support. 